The Lead from the Heart podcast is sponsored by Mitel Networks, a Canadian-based telecommunications company with offices all around the world. Mitel's goal is to create a company culture that inspires courage, empathy, and kindness, and it seeks to be part of the global movement to build humane workplaces where people want to come and do great work. Mitel is also very proud to be the sole sponsor of this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about them, find them at mitel.com forward slash Mark. Hello, everyone. Mark Crowley here. You're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. We're all in for a treat today as my guest is Daniel Pink, a man who probably and literally needs no introduction. But for anyone who might just be unfamiliar with his work, he's the author of the New York Times bestsellers, A Whole New Mind, Drive, To Sell as Human, and When. And his books, of course, have sold millions of copies. He's more formally known as Daniel, but generally goes by Dan. And he's just written another uber-selling book that I'm excited to be discussing with him in just a moment. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into regret. Dan's book is called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. And it's a title that pretty much sums up his belief that we can take all of the regrets we have in our lives and put them to a beneficial use. And that's a really powerful idea when you realize that most of us treat our regrets as either constant and painful annoyances or even worse, bitter memories of irreversible choices we once made that will somehow forever diminish our future happiness and success. On the other hand, there are some people who apparently have zero regrets and proudly tattoo that sentiment on their bodies to remind themselves that their goal is to never look back on their lives with any amount of sorrow or disappointment. When I heard about Dan's new book, and before I read it, his focus on regret immediately made me think of two well-known songs in popular culture. The first was My Way by Frank Sinatra, where in reflecting upon his long life, the singer admits to having some regrets, but too few to mention. And the second song is the world famous Non Je Ne Regrette Rien, a French title that means, no, I don't regret anything. And I want to play a little of this song for you. It's sung by the great Edith Piaf. And even if you don't understand the language, listen for the defiance in her voice. This grown and aging woman really wants you to believe she has not a single regret in her life. So I just played a little of that song because when I later read the first page of Dan's book, guess what? He tells the story of Edith Piaf and that exact song. And as you'll soon hear from him, Edith Piaf personally had very much to regret about how her life unfolded. 
So whether we want to own them or not, I think the truth is that everybody has regrets. And by understanding how regret works, we can go on to make smarter decisions, perform better at work and school, and ultimately bring greater meaning to our lives. So for the next hour, Dan Pink will show us how we can reimagine our regrets as a positive force and live richer and more engaged lives. In his words, quote, if we reckon with our regrets properly, they can sharpen our future decisions and improve our performance. And that's going to be the goal and objective of our conversation. And with that, let me say what a profound honor it is to have you as a guest on the Lead from the Heart podcast. Welcome to you, Daniel Pink. Thank you for having me. It's an honor for me and it's an honor for everybody listening in to hear you. So thank you for making time to do it. I've been on enough podcasts and people have asked me, well, what motivated you to write your book? And I always thought that was the weakest question to start off with. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm going to ask you that question. Oh, man, I thought I was going to get off the hook. No, no, I, I read it. I digested it. Funny story is... Your book arrived and I hadn't read it and I went for a long walk and I was just listening to Pandora and the song Non Je Ne Regrette Rien. Right. That came on. And it just made me think, huh, I wonder if that's in there. And of course it's in the very first page of your book. Yes, indeed. So I'm thinking you had a personal experience that led you down this path. Yeah, I did. I did. I did. I mean, part of it is that I was reckoning with my own regrets. I was at a point in my life where to my surprise I had some mileage behind me. And that's always a little alarming, but I also had some mileage ahead of me. And so I was reckoning with those. I had a kid who graduated from college and that was kind of a reckoning, a moment, a marker in time that had me looking backward and thinking about some of my own regrets about my own time in college. And I guess what I found was that when I raised some of these issues very sheepishly with people when I came back, that they responded much more robustly than I would have ever expected, given our general attitudes toward regret as something to be avoided. And so that's always an interesting sign. And then I went to look at some of the research and said, huh, we're really misunderstanding this emotion. So that's how I got onto this. But again, as a personal matter, it's hard for me to imagine having written this book in my 30s. In my 50s, it felt inevitable. Well, it's interesting that Dan Pink would have any regrets given the successes that you've had in your life. Where do those fit? Well, I have all kinds of regrets because everybody has regrets. I mean, regret is one of the most common emotions that we have. It's arguably the most common negative emotion that we have. It is ubiquitous in the human experience. And the puzzle that I'm trying to solve in this book is why is this thing that is so kind of unpleasant also so widespread? Like, what's wrong with us? Are we masochists? And the answer is No, the answer is that regret can be useful if we deal with it properly. And that's the key. I think in general, we haven't been taught how to deal with negative emotions well enough. Some of us ignore them. I think some of us are even taught explicitly to ignore them, that emotions aren't real, that they're not useful. So we block our ears and we drown them out. We ignore them. But I think other times people over-index on them. They wallow in them. They ruminate on them. And so what we have to do is learn how to deal with negative emotions in general And this negative emotion, regret in particular, in a more intelligent way. That's a fantastic introduction for the rest of this conversation. So thank you. Obviously, 
there are people that actually deny having any regrets. And you start off your book referencing French singer Edith Piaf's world-famous anthem, Non J'ai Ne Regrette Rien, and she's defiant. Yes. You know, I've heard this song a million times. Yeah. And by the way, I'm going to include it in the podcast so people can actually hear the energy that she puts into this. But it's like yeah. she's conveying, like, I don't really care about my past. And But you point out in your book that she was actually someone we can all imagine had plenty of regrets. Oh, my God. I mean, the defiance was, I mean, she's a performer, right? And so she was performing defiance. She was performing courage when, in fact, she had plenty of regrets. She had a kid when she was 17, had someone else raise the kid, the kid died. She was addicted to morphine. She was addicted to alcohol. She had multiple marriages. She saddled one husband with debt. She had another lover who was killed. She notoriously drove away many of her friends. And even when she died, all right, this is the great irony here, that even when she died, and she died at the preposterously young age of 47, you know, this withered husk of a person whose body had been decimated, you know, on her deathbed, she didn't say, I don't have any regrets. No, je ne regrette rien. I have no regrets at all. She said, every damn thing in this life you do, you have to pay for. So she died riddled with regrets. And I think it's because that the way that, I mean, your word defiant is very well chosen as a tone for that song. That's exactly what it is. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to defy our regrets, but we also don't want to, you know, in some ways deify our regrets. What we want to do is we want to confront our regrets. And when we do, when we think about our regrets, when we use them as signals, when we use them as data, when we use them as information, it's a powerful emotion for helping us work smarter and live better. Help me understand why the world responded so positively to that song. Uh, because at some level, I think it's what we want to hear. Huh. Because here's the thing. We might be looking for comfort more than we're looking for effectiveness. And there is something comforting about saying, nope, I'm not going to think about any negative emotions. Nope, I'm not going to let them in. Nope, I'm always going to be positive. Nope, I'm always going to look forward. Because the thing about regret is that while it is a, you know, and again, this is not a philosophy, this is what a half century of science tells us, that regret clarifies what we value and it instructs us on how to do better. It clarifies what matters to us and it teaches us what to do next time. So it's a powerfully useful emotion. But if you want that clarification, a lot of us want clarification and a lot of us want instruction, but it comes with discomfort. It comes with a little spear of pain. And so people are willing to say, I don't want any of the pain, but therefore they're denying all the benefit. Wow, you're really good at this. You're really direct and you really understand your message and that comes across loud and clear. So it's fun listening to you. Well, you know what? I wrote a book on this topic, amazingly enough. <laughs> I know, but you know what? I talk to a lot of people who write books and they understand their message, but they want to get into sometimes, not always, but sometimes they get into the weeds. They get into details that aren't really powerful enough to bring home the message for people who haven't read the book. And I can already tell that you're a master at this. Let's talk a little bit more about people who basically say, I absolutely have no regrets. These people that actually tattoo their bodies, <laughs> which you mentioned in the book. I mean, it's like, in other words, they never say no to anything in their life. They'll live it to the fullest, even when the outcomes are unfavorable. So is there ever a time when saying no regrets is truthful? Or are these people just in complete denial? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, I think that there are plenty of things that we do in life. There are plenty of mistakes that we make that where we don't have regrets, and that's fine. Regrets are different from 
mistakes. I probably have made multiple mistakes this week, most of which I forget and therefore don't regret, and that's fine. And actually looking forward, looking prospectively and trying to minimize your regrets is actually healthy behavior most of the time too. So I don't think that they're consciously deluding themselves. I just feel like they've been fed a bill of goods. The bill of goods is that you want to be positive all the time and you want to look forward all the time. And the truth of the matter is, is that positive emotions are great. Positive emotions make life worth living. You want to have a lot of positive emotions. But negative emotions, like this most prominent negative emotion, exist for a reason. It's useful. Let's take another negative emotion. Let's think about fear. That's a negative emotion. Think about if you couldn't experience fear. You'd be dead, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, well, oh. Well, we wouldn't be have a species any longer, right? Yeah. Right. Well, no, well, yeah, I don't mean you. Exactly, exactly. I mean, we, the species would be dead, right? It's adaptive. The, the trait of fear is adaptive. Now, too much fear can tip us into anxiety and paranoia and other kinds of disturbed behaviors. But fear exists for a reason. It helps keep us alive. Or think about something like grief. Grief is a terrible emotion. But do you want to live in a world where we extinguish all feelings of grief? Absolutely not. I don't. Because the reason we grieve is because we love. And so what we have to do is we have to recognize that a human life is a mix of emotions. It's great. We want to have many more positive emotions and negative emotions. But we don't want to banish all negative emotions because they're useful. They help us. And this emotion of regret, as I said, it clarifies what we value and it instructs us on how to do better. And even at a more specific, concrete, reductive, tactical level, if we treat our regrets properly, we become better negotiators, we become better problem solvers, we become better strategists, we become better leaders, we become better parents. And so, the, you know, you mentioned these people with these tattoos. If you have a tattoo that says no regrets, at some level, it's like having a tattoo that says no learning. <laughs> and I don't think anybody would enshrine that phrase on their bodies. That's really powerful. And, and it makes me wonder, is it that we just have learned to treat regret as being so painful that we want to bury them, as opposed to reflecting on them, re-experiencing the pain and healing that, learning from it? and going forward in a better direction? I think it's both, and I think that they're connected. I think part of it is that we have been taught a poor lesson, which is that we should be relentlessly positive all the time, never be negative, and never look back. That the whole positive thinking movement, which is generally a good thing, has gone overboard. And we have somehow gotten the message that being negative at any time in your life, at any time in your journey is debilitating, that we should be relentlessly optimistic all the time, that we should always be looking forward and never looking back. And that is just not a recipe for an effective and meaningful life. What's more is that when we inevitably experience these negative emotions, particularly the negative emotion like regret, we don't know what to do with it. No one's ever taught us what to do with it. So we've sort of taught the wrong lesson, be positive all the time under all circumstances. But that's impossible. And so when these negative emotions inevitably intrude, no one ever teaches us how to deal with them. How did you learn this? What was your research process? We'll talk a minute about the poll that you did, but there's a deeper understanding here that didn't come from a poll. And I'm just curious as to, and I really think about this in terms of all of your work. Yeah, there's science on this topic. I mean, scientists, actually, interesting, really, economists and game theorists started studying regret in the 
50s, often as a form of decision making, often, as I mentioned, as a form of game theory inflected by the Cold War. And then as time went by, psychologists began looking at regret. So mostly social psychologists who study, you know, how people interact in environments and how people behave out in the world. But also developmental psychologists began taking on this concept of regret. Developmental psychologists talk about how do we shape who we are over time. And then in the world of cognitive science and neuroscience, they started going after looking at regret because it is a feature of our brain. So we actually know a lot about this emotion. And what we know are two broad things. One, everybody has regrets. Truly, the only people without regrets are five-year-olds, people with brain lesions, and sociopaths. The rest of us have regrets. And the reason for that, as I mentioned earlier, is that regrets are useful, that if we treat them right, regrets can make us better. And this is not some kind of philosophy that I'm pushing. I'm not trying to institute a new religion based on my <laughs> feelings or intuitions or my prescriptive view of the world. This is what 50, 60 years of science tells us. But I think that your question is really, really well placed. I wish everybody would ask this question when a, you know, a self-proclaimed expert like me starts talking. You should be generously skeptical. And you should say, how do you know? And that's the question you're asking. How do you know? And my answer to the how do you know question is, we have, uh, we have a half century of research telling us this very, very, very clearly. How do we deal with really big regrets? Like I went to prison or I became an alcoholic and lost my family. These are just two that just popped into my head. Yeah. But, you know, something where you can't go back and fix it. Like most things we've done, they're behind us and we can't rewrite history. Yeah. But those would be tough to handle. And as I was reading your book, I was wondering, like, did you come across some where you go, hmm, this one may not be so instructive because it really would be that painful? Well, I mean, let's take the example of going to jail. And I did two other pieces of research, which you flicked at. One was a large public opinion survey. The other one was just a giant collection of regrets from around the world. And I have people who have gone to prison. Now, can they go backward in time and avoid going to prison? No. All right. That's not possible. They can't hop into a time machine and rewrite history. But what they can do is they can try to draw a lesson from that. And and there's a systematic way to draw lessons from that experience. So whatever the bad decision was that led them to prison, assuming that there was something like that, the bad decision that led them to prison, they can scrutinize that. They can interrogate that question, that reason. They can hold up their decision making to the harsh light and try to draw a lesson from it that they can apply going forward. What about the person who ruined their life? They can instruct others in the way that sometimes people who have served the formerly incarcerated will sometimes go and talk to others and say, don't do what I did. Let me share with you my regret. I can't do anything to repair it immediately. But if you hear my regret, it might help you avert your future regrets. I mean, I'm thinking your book would be really useful to people who are in prison for a long time, coming out and thinking about what can I do with the rest of my life? Because it's a powerful mindset shift where you say, you know, actually, you can use this for good. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people realize that. And that's one of the key takeaways from your book. Yeah. So tell us about the 5,000 people around the world that you asked them to reveal their past choices and behaviors that they regretted most. What did you learn from that? Well, I set up something called the World Regret Survey, where it was just a giant collection tool. It's at worldregretsurvey.com. And with a couple of tweets and a newsletter mentioned, invited people to submit their regret. And to my surprise, 
in a practically a blink of an eye, we had over 15,000 of them. We're now over 19,000 regrets from people in 109 countries. It's <laughs> unbelievable. It's quite fascinating. There are these little mini sagas about people's regrets, these very compressed narratives about people making a bad decision or not acting when they wanted to or doing something that hurt somebody else. And what I found in looking over these is that the traditional way that we had thought about what people regret was misguided. Typically, when scholars look at what people regretted, and I did the same thing in another piece of research, we had the participants organize their regrets by domain. So thinking about it, like, oh, this is a career regret, or this is a romance regret, or this is a health regret. And what I found looking at these thousands upon thousands upon thousands of regrets is that those domains of life mattered to some extent, but they mattered a lot less than what was going on beneath that domain. And I found that around the world, people were expressing the same four regrets over and over and over and over. Did it pain you to read these? Like, what was your response? It's interesting you say that. It actually didn't pain me to read that. In a way, it had the opposite effect. I find it kind of heartening because one of my surprise conclusions is that when people tell you what they regret the most, they're telling you what they value the most. So in some ways, this was not a sad chorus, but a kind of ennobling chorus of people who are essentially saying, this is what matters to me most in my life. The reason I regret some of these decisions and indecisions is because it went against what I value and it went against who I aspire to be as a human being. You ended up giving them different names than what you just described. So let me just set this up, and I'm just going to give you the stage here to take us through them. You identified what you call the four core regrets. And this is obviously as a consequence of reading thousands and thousands of people's regrets around the world. And they include foundation regrets, boldness regrets, moral regrets, and connection regrets. Right. So essentially... You write that the things that pain us most about our past choices relate to not having better prepared ourselves for the future, not having had the courage to act when it mattered, not having harmed another person as we did, and not sustaining important relationships. So I could have broken them all up and taken them one by one, but the, <laughs> you're in the advanced group, Dan, so I want to just hand it to you and say, <laughs> <laughs> describe them more effectively than I just did, and then guide us in how we can make peace. Well, no, you did a good job of describing them. So foundation regrets are, it might help your listeners to know what these regrets actually sound like, because the language here is often important. And looking closely at the language, a close reading of the language that people used, helped me uncover and excavate these four core regrets at the deep structure of our lives. So one of them, as you mentioned, is foundation regrets. And those sound like this, if only I'd done the work. These are regrets that people have about small decisions they made early in life that accumulate and have bad consequences later in life. So lots of people who regret saving too little and spending too much. Surprising numbers of people, at least surprised to me, regret not working hard enough in school. There are regrets about health outside of the United States, particularly in South America, a lot of regrets about smoking. Hmm. So again, small decisions that prevent you from having a stable platform for your life or destabilize that platform for your life. Second one, boldness regrets. Boldness regrets sound like this. If only I'd taken the chance. These are people who regret not asking somebody out on a date. They regret not traveling and being adventurous. They regret not speaking up and asserting themselves. 
They regret huge category. They regret staying in ho-hum jobs instead of becoming an entrepreneur and going out on their own. Third category, moral regrets. Those are, if only I'd done the right thing. These are people who, like all these regrets, begin at a juncture. And the juncture here is I can do the right thing or I can do the wrong thing. And again, to my surprise, overwhelmingly, people who do the wrong thing seem to regret it. And so that's everything from marital infidelity to treating people unkindly to affirmative bullying and so forth. And then finally is the fourth category, which is connection regrets. And these are about relationships and relationships that have come apart. And I don't mean romantic relationships necessarily. In fact, mostly not romantic relationships. Relationships that were intact or should have been intact, they come apart usually in pretty uninteresting ways, non-dramatic ways. And somebody wants to reach out, but they don't because they think it's going to feel weird and they think the other side is not going to care. So they don't reach out and they drift apart even more, which makes the overture even more weird and makes it, in their view at least, less likely the person will respond. And so connection regrets are if only I'd reached out. And when you look at these regrets, you know, they operate, at, you know, you know this from the book. In my view, they operate as a reverse image of a good life. That is, if we know where people regret the most. We know what they value the most, that we know what matters most to them. And so we can look at these four regrets, flip it to the reverse image. And what it's saying is, what do people value out of life? They want some stability. This is foundation, some stability. A good life is not precarious. They want some predictability and some stability. Two, they want a chance to learn and grow and lead a psychologically rich life, to do something more than the mundane. That's boldness. Third category. They want to be good. I'm convinced that most of us want to be good and feel crappy when we're not good. And then finally, number four is what do we want? We want connection to other people. We want love. And again, more than simply romantic love, what we want is a broader notion of love that encompasses, you know, all of our relatives and our friends and our neighbors and humanity itself. So when people went on your site and expressed their regrets, what was their motivation? Just to inform you? Or was it to cleanse themselves in some way, to heal themselves? What do you think the goal was? I have to just guess. It's, a, it's an intriguing question. I, I'm curious to hear what you think about it. I think that for many people, it was a form of unburdening, and it was a form of sense-making. And also, when you go to the site, you can go to this interactive map when the back-end code is working, and you can click on a country and see what the last few regrets are from that particular country or from that particular state or that particular province in Canada. And I think that people were surprised that they weren't alone, that there were all these other regrets out there. And they said, well, other people are doing it. I can do it, too. And I want to do it because when I reveal my regret, I lighten my burden. And language itself, writing it down, helps me make sense of what's going on. If you never thought of that question, <laughs> you have a really remarkable answer to it. Sense-making is the part that I would put in a frame. Yeah. When I ask people questions on Twitter, I get responses, and I'm almost certain people are like deep inside of themselves when they're answering it. You know, they're really reflecting on it. But this is actually really important in general and with regrets specifically. That is, one of the ways that we can overcome our regrets, one of the ways we can harness our regrets as a force for good is to disclose them because, as I said, that's a lightening of the mental load, the emotional load. But the other thing about it, which is that emotions are abstract, they're blobby, they're amorphous. And that's what makes negative emotions menacing because they don't really have a form. It's actually what makes positive emotions feel so good is that they don't have a form, they're abstract. 
But with negative emotions, that menacing abstraction, we can do something about. And what we can do is we can convert it to words. And when we convert things to words, we defang that menace. We make those concrete words are less fearsome than the amorphous abstract emotion. And it allows us to make sense of it. A lot of times, I think non-writers don't quite understand this. They think that the way that you write a book or write anything is you figure out what you're going to say, and then you write it down and say it. When in fact, that's not how it works in most cases, that writing itself is a form of figuring it out. And so writing down our regrets, even talking about our regrets, the advantage is more than simply disclosure for disclosure's sake. It is a way to transmute this abstract emotion into something concrete and begin to make sense of it. So are you encouraging people to take action on their regrets? A simple example is I harmed somebody 10 years ago and the person's not in my life anymore, but I always feel bad about what I said to him or how I treated him, etc. Is there an encouragement on your part to say, hey, if you can track down that person and just say, you know what, this has been bothering me for a really long time and I want you to know that I'm really sorry. Is that part of the healing and the growth? I think it can be in most circumstances. In fact, I have yet to hear a story where someone does that and gets a bad result. And so those are for regrets of action. Those tend to be moral regrets where you've taken an action that has hurt somebody. And I found that the response to those, when people who were bullies go back and talk to the people they victimize, mm -hmm. is that there's a great degree of forgiveness out there on the part of the people who were aggrieved. It's not true for every single person every single time, but in general, I truly have yet to hear a story where that didn't work out well. So, I mean, again, your mileage may vary out there, but <laughs> it, it seems to be a generally positive move. What about, this is getting off topic a little bit, but, you know, what about like reaching out to the girlfriend or boyfriend that got away and say, hey, I'm really sorry that I let you go. Is that uh, opening up a can of worms? <laughs> that Okay, so, so that's an interesting one. That's an interesting one because that's an inaction. So we have more regrets about inaction than about action. So that is... I don't know about that one. I mean, if you, I think that it depends, you know, sort of <laughs> depends on what your relationship status is right now. Right. <laughs> Starting up a new relationship while you're right, right, right. Not, not practical. Right, yeah. right, right. And I don't know, you know, I, I don't know. I don't have any examples of people who go back and say, oh, wow, I really wanted to ask you out 25 years ago, but <laughs> I never got around to it. That'd be inter kind of interesting to see how people would react to that. Did you quantify these in a sense that, you know, a certain number or a certain percentage, rather, of the regrets are foundational, certain are boldness, a certain are moral, and a certain percentage of connection? Like, do we as a species lean into one more than another is really what I'm asking. Yeah, it seems like in the way that I analyze these things, by my analysis, and again, take it as the first word rather than the last word. But by my analysis, the biggest category was connection regrets, and the second biggest category was boldness regrets. And moral regrets were the smallest category, but they were very, very deeply held. And painful, I would imagine, right? Yeah, yeah. So perfect transition here, because as this is a leadership podcast, I really want to talk about inaction more than actions. And in my career, I observed the managers around me at all levels. And you could see that there was just some that just lacked courage. They waited yeah. to see where the tide was going. And that's when, yeah. that, you know, and it was just sort of their characteristic. And yet there were others that were just exploring, experimenting and sort of, I won't say recklessly, but 
saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot and see what happens. And then we can reapproach this if it doesn't go well, but let's give it a shot. And those are the people that I always saw be very successful. So how do you encourage, I just love your insight around just speaking to the leaders in this room, if you will, and just say, when you're faced with an opportunity to take a risk, here's how you should be thinking about it and approaching it. Yeah, I don't think there's a universal decision-making tool for that particular issue. But I do think that having looked at all of these regrets that we are sometimes, and forgive the silly way of talking about it, over-indexed on risk. That is, we sometimes too risk-averse. And this is true throughout life. It's true when we anticipate our regrets. And I think that the solution is one that we've heard for a while about business and leadership. And I think it's right about leadership, and I think it's right about life, is that we should have a slight bias for action. Mm. And the reason that we should have a slight bias for action is that the consequences of action are often much less dire than we fear. And the reason that we don't take action is that when we think about the negative consequences of action, we can picture them. But when we think about the negative consequences of inaction, they still exist, but we don't picture them because it's the status quo. And so I think in general, in life, what we want is to have a slight bias for action. Now, that doesn't mean to take the risk and take the chance and act every single time. But in general, I think that that should be your default setting, that is to act. And the reason for that, I think, is twofold. One, we know what people regret the most are inactions more than actions, especially as we age. Early in our life, we have about equal numbers of regrets of action, what I did, and regrets of inaction, what I didn't do. But as we age, the inaction regrets take over. And so to avoid those inaction regrets, just do stuff and try stuff. And what I found in this database of these regrets is that let's take something like starting a business. There are plenty of people who started a business and it failed, and some of them regret doing that. But many of them do not, because even though it failed, they actually did something. So the fact that inactions haunt us suggests that we might want to have a bias for action. What's more, and I think there's an even deeper reason for this slight bias for action, is that action is how we understand. We sometimes draw too distinctive a border between planning and doing. And we think that in order to do something, we have to plan it out. And it rarely works that way, that acting is a way of figuring out what works and what doesn't and actually a way of figuring out what to do. And so in general, I think the takeaway is act a little bit more and remain passive a little bit less. So let me parse this. You say slight bias for action. Why slight? Because everything you've talked about is about the benefits of it. Because I don't think you take every risk. You know, I don't think that you say, okay, so like I happen to be in my running clothes right now. All right. And let's say that it was a thunderstorm. Should I say, well, it's a little risky to go out and run during lightning, but I have a bias for action. All right. That's <laughs> right. not, a, you yeah. know, that, that's what, that's what I mean. So I don't think that we act in every case, but I think that what we need in a sense is a, the amount of risk we fear in our decisions is often greater than the amount of risk that there is. So we almost need like a deflator, like some kind of price adjustment. I think in most cases, our fears, our assessment of certain kinds of risk is greater than the actual risk itself. I think that's certainly true for decision-making when it comes to boldness and things like that. Let's talk about fear for a second. You've had some truly extraordinary books. Just yesterday, I just went and looked on Amazon and like two of them that you've written years ago are doing just as well as this one. And 
So let's talk about fear from a writing standpoint. With all that success behind you, when you start a new project, do you ever worry that, you know, um, I hope this one stands up to all the other ones? You know, I, I want to make sure that everything I produce is going to be extraordinary. Is there any fear going through you? And really what I want to know is, if there is, how did you overcome it? Yeah, I don't know if I call it fear. It's that I feel a sense of responsibility. That is, if I'm writing a book and I'm asking people saying, hey, I want you to pay $25 or 20 bucks for this book. So that's 20 bucks that you're not going to spend on something else. And not only that do I want you to spend 20 bucks on it, but I want you to spend eight or nine hours reading it. And those eight or nine hours reading it are going to be more valuable than anything else you could do with those eight or nine hours. Playing with your kids, answering email, going out for a walk. I feel a great responsibility on that because I want to deliver on that promise. And I want to make the promise saying, yeah, you know what? You're going to pay 20 bucks for this. It's going to be worth way more than 20 bucks. Mm. You're going to spend eight or nine hours on this. I'm going to make sure that every minute you spend on this is valuable and entertaining and engaging and meaningful. And so what that does, I think it's not so much fear, Mark. It's more of a case of sort of responsibility that I have to deliver on that promise. It's a pretty wonderful intention, Dan. I have to say that. Well, thanks. Yeah, absolutely. I want to nail down this idea that when we have a regret and we reflect on it, that it can influence us and should influence us to behave differently next time. So is there a process? Does that just happen organically? No, no. It doesn't happen organically. And that's the issue. And no one ever teaches us how to do it. I think there's a relatively simple process for doing it. And the way I think about it is, in some ways, inward, outward, forward, inward, outward, forward. So inward, you have to reassess how you think about the regret in yourself. A lot of times we're way too harsh on ourselves. And so your better approach, instead of just beating yourself up or even pumping up your self-esteem, is something called self-compassion where you treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. So when you make a mistake, when you screw up, when you have a regret, when you have a slip up, you don't berate yourself, you don't excoriate yourself, you treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. You treat yourself as kindly as you treat somebody else and recognize that your missteps are part of the human condition. The second thing, which we talked a little bit about, is disclosing and converting to language to make sense of it. Disclosure is important, and the sense-making that comes from language is crucial. So that's the second step. And the third one is really, really important, and this definitely doesn't happen organically to your question. And it is, you have to draw a lesson from it. You have to draw a lesson from it. You have to explicitly say, what is this teaching me, and what am I going to do next time? And we tend to be pretty bad at that kind of problem-solving for ourselves. When we solve our own problems, we're way too enmeshed in the details. And what we want to do is something called self-distancing. Self-distancing are just some mental techniques for zooming out on the problem. So it could be things like talking to yourself in the third person. You know, if I'm trying to think what to do, I don't say, what should I do? I should say, what should Dan do? Zooming out a little bit. I'm a big fan of talking to a future version of yourself. What does the you of 10 years from now want you to do? Or even, you know, again, this is a decision-making technique that I think has some universal application, which is when you're deciding what to do and you're stuck, ask yourself, what would I tell my best friend to do? What would I tell my best friend to do? And so this kind of systematic process, inward, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt, outward, disclose and make sense of it through language, forward, take a step back and extract a lesson from it. It's not that hard. And the problem is that no one teaches us how to do this. And so one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is give people that very systematic step-by-step -step way 
to convert this negative emotion into something that's positive. One of the big hurdles in this process you just described is treating yourself with kindness. Yeah, absolutely. That's a lesson that took me for pretty much my entire life to figure out. Uh, yeah. How did you figure it out? You know what? Here's how I came to it. I came to it in the least emotionally intelligent way you possibly could. I came to it by reading the research on self-compassion. Mm, Kristen Neff. And exactly. Kristen Neff's work on self-compassion. She started this movement 20 years ago. I found the amount of research and the benefits of self-compassion are overwhelming. What's more is that intellectually, there's a dog that didn't bark. <laughs> and the, the dog that didn't bark here is the research on self-criticism and how effective self-criticism is. There's no sign that self-criticism is especially effective, even though we think that it, of course, self-criticism has to be effective. Of course, lacerating yourself has to be effective. And the evidence shows that it's actually not. So I came to it in a cold-blooded intellectual way. I've mentioned this quote before, but the pivot point for me was in reading Anne Lamott's book, Bird by Bird. She's describing the process of writing. And she said, why are you writing? You have to be militantly on your own side. Oh, interesting. And I thought, oh my God, like that's something I've never thought to do. I'm actually yeah. on the other side, you know, but really, you know, it's transformational. So I well, I was appreciative of you explaining how you got there. That's a great line from that book that a lot of people don't remember. People remember shitty first drafts. People remember the metaphor bird by bird, but that's a really great reminder. One of the things that we humans do when we're reflecting on the people that we didn't marry or the jobs we didn't take or the education, as you mentioned earlier, that we didn't work hard enough on or even pursue is to then assume that the life we could have had had we done those things would have been infinitely better. Yeah. And so I want you to pin down, there's got to be a healthier way of dealing with it instead of just saying, you know, my life is going to suck forever because... I didn't marry Susan or I didn't take that job or I spent all my time drinking in college. Yeah. Well, most of us do a pretty good job of regulating the worst part of that. So we do things like at least we do downward counterfactual. So we say, oh, that was such a mistake taking that job. But at least I met my best friend, Kevin, at that job. Mm. And we can do some things to take some of the psychological sting out of it. But what I found is that especially with things like boldness regrets, is that um, people weren't fantasizing that everything would be perfect had they only made that other move. What was really bugging them was the inaction itself. Hmm. So I have a character in the book who met a woman on a train 40 years ago and wishes he had gotten off the train with her when the train stopped. And the reason he does that is not because he said, oh my God, my life would be totally different. We'd be married now and have this international lifestyle and these all these kids. He never said anything like that. It was really the act itself. It was really looking back on his previous self and saying, I had a moment to really step up and do something and take a chance, and I blew it. And that's not how the kind of person he wants to be. And so fantasizing about how perfect your life would be had you only made different choices is profoundly unhealthy. Thinking about the choice itself and what you learn from making that mistake and extracting a lesson from it is profoundly healthy. So your book hasn't been out all that long. I'm wondering if you've heard from readers saying, you know what, I had this regret. It was hugely painful for me, profoundly painful. I didn't think I was going to get over it, but your book was able to transport me to a different frame of thinking on this. And here's what I did with it. Have you heard from anybody who's used this? Yeah, I have. And it's been, uh, thank you for asking that. And it's been pretty heartening. I've heard from both inactions and actions. So I've heard from people who say, oh, 
I'm so glad to know I wasn't the only one who regrets not starting a business. But now that I have a chance to see that, I'm going to, I just launched a side hustle and we're going to see how it goes. Or I just had somebody about three days ago tell me that after reading the book, he went back and reached out to people whom he had hurt, three people he had hurt, and apologized to them and said it was one of the best things he's done in his life. That's got to be rewarding. Yeah, those are the kinds of things that keep me in the writing business for another (laughs) week or 10 days. I would imagine. The end of your book, you say, and I'm going to quote you, regret makes me human. Regret makes me better. Regret gives me hope. So before you go, please sum up why something so painful can be such a positive in our lives. Because it goes back to what we were talking about before, which is that it's clarifying. And these four core regrets, as I say in the book, are a photographic negative of the good life. So we know what people want out of life. And even for me in personal, just reckoning with my own regrets has been useful. So I have some regrets about, forgive me for digressing here a little bit, mm-hmm. but I have some regrets about, about kindness earlier in my life. I was never a bully, but I was in many situations where people were not being treated well. They were being excluded. I saw that it was going on. I knew it was wrong and I didn't do anything. And that bugs me. <laughs> but the fact that it's bugged me for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years is actually helpful. Now, if it bugged me and I said, ah, never look backward, this is nonsense, that's not good. If it bugs me and I say, oh my God, I am the worst person ever, I am inherently flawed, I'm just an evil, vicious, cruel human being, that's bad too. To me, it's like, what is this signal telling me? And what the signal is telling me is that I value kindness more than I might realize consciously. I value kindness, and it's also instructing me on what to do, which is to be kinder, to be more inclusive later on. And that's why it gives me hope, because by reckoning with that regret, by staring it in the eye and confronting it rather than trying to skate by it, it makes me a better person. Have you confirmed that? And I, I don't mean this way I just asked it. What I mean to say is, I mean, do you in your heart of hearts know that you are more empathetic, compassionate, and kind? I mean, again, the premise of the question is that it's possible for us to know ourselves at any depth. But assuming that that's true, I think it is because I can look at my behavior. I'll give you an example of it. You know, I have people who could testify to this, my wife, for instance. So if you look at me in social gatherings, and now this is a small thing. I'm not saying that I'm, you know, Mother Teresa here at all, <laughs> that, that, that I become like eligible You're for... You're not on the stand either. So. Yeah, that, I, that I'm eligible for sainthood or anything like that, but... If you look at me in social gatherings, you will see that, let's say there's a social gathering and there's some clumps of people talking, and then maybe there's someone who's marooned by herself or someone who's on the periphery of the conversation but isn't being let in. I will always, and I'm not joking around, always reach out, pull that one of those people in, expand the circle to let in that person. And, and I'm convinced it's because of the pain that I felt from knowingly not doing that earlier in my life. That really punctuates your whole book, that whole story right there. You had the experience, you regretted it, you reflected on it, you changed your behavior, and now you're you're getting great satisfaction out of that. I'm still a flawed person, but I'm on a better trajectory. Let's stop here for a moment, and listeners, we'll be right back after this very brief message. A quick reminder that Mitel Networks is this podcast's sole sponsor because it fully embraces our message of empathy, compassion, and caring as a means to elevating workplace leadership all around the world. Mitel also loves the upcoming Heartbeat Round segment and invites you to learn more about them at mitel.com forward slash mark. 
So Dan, we have a tradition on our podcast where we take a quick break from the discussion we've been having and move into what we call the heartbeat route. And as a means to really getting to know you a bit more personally, I have about a dozen questions I'd like to ask you. But with these, your goal will be to answer them very quickly and instinctively. In other words, in a heartbeat. Ready to give it a try? Lay it on me. All right, here we go. Quality you consider essential to your success? Curiosity. The best book you've read in the past year? Any genre? Uh, Blake Gopnik's biography of Andy Warhol. One thing you'd like to see change in the world? Greater equality of opportunity. Something outside of writing you find intrinsically rewarding? Um, making and drinking cocktails. I'd love to explore that with you. What the pandemic is here to teach us? Uh, that we're mortal and that we're connected. Your life's biggest regret, other than the one you mentioned earlier? Oh, man. Um, that I haven't done enough to create equal opportunity for others. How you define your personal purpose? To help people see their lives uh, more clearly and maybe to live their lives more fully. Prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true. Uh, you and I will be older next year than we are this year. <laughs> All right. A cultural value every organization should have. Hmm. Psychological safety. The trait you admire most in other people. Kindness. Your synonym for the word heart. Empathy. Quality that derails the most leadership careers. Lack of perspective taking. Explain that a little bit. Uh, that people see things only from their own point of view. They don't take other people's points of view. And a piece of wisdom you want all workplace leaders to always remember. Talk less, listen more. Very, very well done. Thank you for going through this with me, Dan. I really appreciate it. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you really want to make sure that our audience knows about regrets, you, your book, tying all those pieces together? Any final thoughts? No, I think you covered a lot of ground really briskly and elegantly. I just want to reiterate the idea that everybody has regrets. It's part of the human condition. It's part of our cognitive machinery. And it's really up to us what we do with them, whether we ignore them, whether we wallow in them, or, which I'm hoping people will do, we think about them and use them and list them to become better people and bigger contributors. You said this was a brisk interview, and I will tell you that through the entire conversation, part of me is outside of my body going, wow, this is like so brisk. <laughs> so you're one cool dude, Dan Pink. Thank you so very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being the only person on the planet who says that or believes it, <laughs> but I appreciate it. All right. Best to you, sir. All right. Thank you. Take care. You too. Before we go, I'd like to quickly plug myself here for just a second. And if you are looking for a keynote speaker for your next live or virtual meeting or a partner to help you elevate your organization's culture, please keep me in mind as I would so love to help you achieve those goals. I want to thank Daniel Pink, along with My Till Networks, not to mention the BBC Big Band Orchestra, which performs our theme song, Take the A Train, written by Billy Strayhorn. I want to thank my team, Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Kerry Finnessy, and especially my sound editor and producer, Eric Oz. His work behind the scenes consistently ensures you have a wonderful audio experience, and what he does is often magic to me. And finally, I leave you with my two constant reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. And be sure to love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley, signing off for now. Mm -hmm.